Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there's more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Kempton Bunton and the theft of Goya's Duke of Wellington. Now let's get started with our story about Kempton Bunton. Arthur Wellesley, the first Duke of Wellington, became one of the most prominent military and political leaders of the British Empire during the first half of the 19th century. Despite spending approximately 15 years in military posts that included the Netherlands and especially India, Wellesley remained an obscure commanding officer until his 1808 assignment to the Peninsula War an extended conflict on the Iberian Peninsula, combating Napoleonic occupation. This grueling struggle, combined with Napoleon's disastrous 1812 invasion of Russia, depleted French military strength and led to France's eventual capitulation. One of the key moments of the Peninsula War occurred when Wellesley, then the Earl of Wellington, achieved a decisive victory at Salamanca which led to the liberation of the capital, Madrid, and the flight to Valencia of Joseph Bonaparte, titular king of Spain and brother of Napoleon Bonaparte. The Earl entered the capital on August 12, 1812, at the head of his troops, the British hailed as liberators by Madrid's grateful inhabitants. The Peninsula War dragged on laboriously until 1814, and the final collapse and abdication of Napoleon Bonaparte. But after Salamanca, Madrid was never reoccupied by French forces. As a celebrity, Wellington, in the capital, crossed paths with Francisco de Goya, the Spanish court painter and a prominent member of official society in his own right. Goya was able to get the British commander to sit for a sketch and two other eventual paintings, an equestrian study, and a remarkable portrait of Wellington in scarlet uniform, festooned with numerous colorful decorations and a remarkably lifelike expression. Over time, as the historical prominence of both men grew, this portrait achieved a special stature denoting the interaction of one of Europe's greatest artists with one of the continent's most accomplished statesmen and military leaders, a truly rare collaboration. Wellington may not have foreseen this eventual artistic appreciation. He gave the painting away to his sister-in-law, Mary Ann Patterson, née Caton, the Marchioness Wellesley, who was the wife of the Duke of Wellington's brother, Richard. Perhaps Wellington did have an underlying reason in presenting this woman with such a remarkable likeness of himself. Unlike his brother, Richard Wellesley was seen as a somewhat scandalous figure who had five children with his first wife, a French actress, before he married her. 
After she died, and by the time he met the Marchioness, he also had fathered additional illegitimate children with his teenage mistress. In fact, the Duke of Wellington initially cautioned his prospective sister-in-law not to marry Richard. Marianne, the archetypical wealthy American heiress courted by Richard, who was strapped for cash to bankroll his profligate lifestyle, and children who literally were referred to by other family members as the Parasites. So close was the Duke of Wellington with Marianne that rumors of a love affair have always swirled around the couple. In fact, the gift of this unique likeness might have had great significance. In any case, Marianne did marry Richard Wellesley, and the marriage resulted in what has been described as a happy relationship until his death in 1842. However, there were no children, and when Marianne died in 1853, she left the painting to her sister, Louisa, who had also married into British nobility, in her case, Francis Darcy Osborne, the seventh Duke of Leeds. The painting remained in the family, eventually landing in the possession of John Osborne, the 11th Duke of Leeds. Osborne was agreeable enough to lend the painting to the National Portrait Gallery from 1930 until 1949, but eventually reclaimed the painting. Most likely, as his most notable avocation in life seems to have been extinguishing anything that remained of his family's fortune, the Duke sensed that selling the painting might become a necessity. This eventuality came to pass in 1961. On June 14th of that year, Sotheby's auctioned off Goya's Duke of Wellington for £140,000, not as staggering as some of the auctions of today but still at the time, a breathtaking sum of money. When the identity of the buyer was revealed, there was both a public and political uproar. The painting, roughly equivalent to something like Washington's portrait by Gilbert Stuart, was not only purchased by an American, but by Charles Reitzman, an Oklahoma oil executive and wealthy trustee of New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. Reitzman had already donated several extremely valuable paintings from his extensive collection to the Met, and undoubtedly the Duke's portrait eventually would wind up in this museum permanently and irrevocably. The outcry was so great that Parliament got involved, demanding the refusal of the export license necessary to remove the object from the country, and even a seven-month freeze of the issuance of such a license so that the government could raise enough money to buy the painting back. Fortunately for the British government and public, Charles Reitzman proved to be both reasonable and extremely publicity-shy. As long as he was reimbursed for the purchase price of the painting, he privately and readily agreed to relinquish any claim to the portrait Still, this exposed an awkward and embarrassing situation in which the official agencies responsible for funding the purchase of artworks worthy of the British national interest admitted that they were currently depleted after the acquisition of, of all things, two Renoirs. Actually, this was the fundamental reason why no serious British government bid for the painting had occurred during the Sotheby's auction. There was not nearly enough public money available to match the Reitzman bankroll. Even worse, when faced with the £140,000 price tag, the British government admitted that it could only scrape together a mere £40,000. 
Fortunately, a private entity, the Wolfson Foundation, founded only six years earlier by mail-order magnate Sir Isaac Wolfson, quickly agreed to pony up the 100,000-pound balance necessary to retain the portrait. Initially, it appeared as if the entire process was actually quite beneficial to all concerned. The initial controversy and subsequent national retention of such a uniquely British artifact generated massive publicity and anticipation when it was announced that the painting would be placed on display at London's National Gallery beginning August 2, 1961. For two and a half weeks, crowds averaging well over 5,000 patrons daily, an unusual increase over the normal number of the museum's visitors, flocked to see the newly acquired painting. To accentuate the stature of, and to ensure maximum accessibility for the throng of visitors eager to see the portrait, Goya's Duke of Wellington was displayed on a portable easel, not in one of the museum's rooms, with other paintings, but by itself, in a common area, in the north vestibule of the gallery. It also was loosely secured on the easel to allow for immediate removal in the event of fire or some other calamity. Then, on August 21st, the painting vanished, initially some confusion as to whether it was misplaced accidentally by some museum official or actually stolen. In fact, on August 22nd, visitors were told by guards that the painting had been removed for conservation an incorrect statement most likely disseminated to both allow for a thorough search of the museum and to stave off, at least for the moment, official embarrassment. Finally, in the late afternoon of August 22nd, museum officials acknowledged publicly that the painting was, in fact, stolen. Oddly enough, the short-term effect of this announcement was to generate even more patron traffic. In the theft's immediate aftermath, the National Gallery generated 7,000 daily visitors, many specifically interested in observing the now-empty showcase that formerly housed the Duke's portrait. This strange influx was not a silver lining of any sort for the National Gallery's administration. Headlines in British tabloids made it clear that not only had someone penetrated the National Gallery's supposedly impregnable security system for the first time, but that even after an intensive search and review by Scotland Yard, officials had absolutely no leads and no idea where the painting was. Only four days after the theft, the gallery's director, Philip Hendy, compiled an official review of the incident in a then-confidential memo entitled, Director's Interim Report on the Theft of Goya's Duke of Wellington. This report documented in precise detail what was known at that time to have transpired internally after the museum's August 21st closing time. Beginning at 7 p.m., Guards patrolled and visually checked all rooms and areas of the building to ensure that no unauthorized individual was present. Then, at 9 p.m., the museum's system of alarms consisting of invisible beams and electronic door seals was activated. A normal second patrol at 10 p.m. did generate a report from a guard who casually stated that the Goya painting was missing. Unfortunately, this report was never properly acknowledged by senior security, who actually also noted officially in a written report submitted on the morning of the 22nd that the painting was acknowledged as missing as of midnight. 
The portrait's absence was so unexpected that museum security merely assumed that an official mix-up had occurred. Most likely, the painting was temporarily removed to some other museum location for photography or even restorative purposes. Unfortunately, it was not until mid-morning that Scotland Yard was even informed that a theft had occurred, allowing the thief a great deal of lead time to successfully disappear from the immediate vicinity, perhaps even internationally. Based on several factors, it was generally maintained by an anonymous museum staff source to the London Times that, quote, only an expert could have removed the picture undetected, unquote. Evasion of the sophisticated alarm mechanisms and the ability to seize one of the gallery's most valuable pieces only weeks after the painting's arrival indicated a ruthlessly professional and experienced art theft expertise. But the director's report also enumerated a fundamentally weak aspect of the museum's security. Only a small number of individuals actually handled protecting four floors that included a main gallery with 39 separate rooms, another floor with, among other facilities, a 7,500-square-foot reference area. There were 250 windows, over three dozen external doors, two lavatories, a restaurant, and numerous stairwells and hallways. Additionally, construction in an area consisting of almost an entire acre directly adjoining the museum building had been ongoing for over five years. Despite the museum's impeccable record against theft, the director's subsequent analysis indicated that this success was probably more due to luck than any official competence. In retrospect, at least in the mind of the director, it was clear that the museum, aside from the electronic alarm system, had a very porous approach to security. One interesting directive did result from this report, the director stating that most likely the thief or thieves had entered the building through an open lavatory window, and henceforth all of these windows were to be closed. Even more depressing, the theft seemed to be the latest in a rash of such international incidents on the continent and even in the United States. In the previous two years, there were seven major art thefts in France alone. In Pittsburgh, steel magnate G. David Thompson was victimized when over a million dollars worth of artwork, including several Picassos, was stolen from his private residence. The realization that the Wellington portrait may have permanently disappeared was underlined by Hendy's almost pathetic public plea to the individual in possession of the painting that the crook protect it from moisture and strong light. By then, Hendy had been able to compose an even more detailed appraisal of what precisely went wrong on August 21st and 22nd, a report that documented several lapses in security procedure, including the improper clearing of a lavatory, even after an individual was observed there after closing time, and even more egregious, the intentional failure to activate the museum's electronic alarms until 9 p.m. to allow various workmen to complete their tasks and leave the building. That left approximately a two-hour window for any thief to avoid perhaps the most formidable protection the museum possessed. Although London police were not notified as quickly as they might have been, they still were able to rapidly develop a theory as to specifically how the intruder made off with the painting after an extensive search of the museum on August 22nd. 
Understanding that an individual was spotted after hours in the lavatory, a team of investigators led by Detective Inspector John McPherson quickly spotted a spot of mud on a windowsill outside of the first floor male lavatory. A ladder from the construction site was also propped up right beneath the open window. Streak marks on a gate that led to the public street, St. Martin Street, were also clearly visible, indicating that this was the exit location of the intruder. McPherson also was able to arrive at a time sequence that indicated approximately when the painting was stolen. Visible to the patrol that occurred at about 7.40 p.m., it was noted as missing at approximately 10 p.m. With the alarm activated at 9 p.m., that meant that the painting was most likely lifted between 7.40 and 9 p.m. The picture was probably conveyed through the men's lavatory window, across two inner courtyards, and over a gate that led to the street. Most importantly, the weight and size of the painting, as well as the size of the window and distance of 14 feet to the ground via the ladder, indicated that the individual who pulled this off was certainly in excellent physical condition and possibly even a well-trained former member of an elite military unit. It also seemed likely that more than one person was involved, especially in assisting in getting the painting over the outer gate without dropping it and possibly even a getaway driver to minimize escape time. That was all well and good, but both the museum and law enforcement were completely stumped as to who currently had the painting and their motivation. One aspect of the crime certainly nagged at everybody involved. Goya's portrait was so famous as to render it unsellable, with the exception of to someone unscrupulous enough to acquire it and enjoy it privately, with the painting disappearing forever. It was quite possible that such a person may have even commissioned professional thieves to steal the work, also meaning it would disappear forever. The gallery administration especially could only wait and hope for some kind of break or information that could at least get the investigation started in some direction. Ten agonizing days passed before a letter arrived at the Reuters News Bureau in London with a London postmark. Reuters gave it to the police, who subjected it to an examination at Scotland Yard's forensic laboratory. Nothing incriminating was found, and the contents of the letter was made public. In simple handwritten block letters, it began with the odd phrase, quote, Query not that I have the Goya, unquote. Establishing that the letter writer was indeed in possession of the painting, and not some quack or hoaxer, was underlined by a description of the various labels and marks on the back of the painting, including the name F. Legalet and Son, a depository where the painting was apparently stored temporarily. The director of this establishment, a Mr. Frank Legalet, verified that in fact he did handle the painting, and the letter writer was likely someone with at least access to it. The letter writer then went on to say that he wanted to exchange but not sell the painting for £140,000 to be established for the sake of charity. When full amnesty and the money was provided, the painting would be returned. And the motive for such a demand? The writer stated, The act is an attempt to pick the pockets of those who love art more than charity. 
although Philip Hendy and company were probably relieved that at least someone had come forward who seemed to have an interest in returning the artwork, and the picture hadn't completely vanished, they had to at least be apprehensive about the letter writer himself. Anyone unstable enough to carry out such a theft and then use the painting to ostensibly establish some inchoate charitable enterprise might be very irrational and difficult to negotiate with. Unfortunately, the extensive media coverage of the letter immediately generated numerous copycat attempts to claim possession or knowledge of the whereabouts of the Duke. After consulting with Scotland Yard, it was decided to not respond to the initial ransom demand, and instead the National Gallery, on September 26, 1961, offered a 5,000-pound reward for information that led to the prosecution of the individuals responsible for the theft and the return of the painting. Internally, it was decided that there would be no ransom paid or even negotiation, the gallery not wanting to reward such outrageous behavior. Then, all of the players waited, presuming that the person who had the painting would contact them again. But for months, nothing happened. However, an important cinematic event underlined how much the theft of the Duke of Wellington impacted the British cultural and media environment. Although it was not officially released until October of 1962, the first James Bond movie, Dr. No, was written and filmed earlier that year. The film's plot involves Bond and his associate, Honey Ryder, played by Ursula Andress, as prisoners in the title character's Jamaican Island headquarters, the site of Dr. No's radio beam that will be used to disrupt an upcoming Mercury launch from Cape Canaveral. Initially, Dr. No, a sinister-looking individual with metal hands as a result of exposure to radiation, attempts to recruit Bond into Spectre, the terrorist organization behind his operation. He invites Bond and Ryder to a dinner in his sumptuous living quarters, and as the couple walk towards the dining room table, Bond does a double-take at a painting situated on an easel off to his right. Although a rather crude copy, the painting is clearly intended to be Goya's Duke of Wellington. The inference that the Duke is most likely in the hands of some master criminal like Dr. No. By the time of the film's release in the fall of 1962, another authentic communication was received. Sent on July 3, 1962, to the Evening Telegraph newspaper, it again began with another strange sentence. The Duke is safe his temperature cared for, his future uncertain. In very odd and stilted language, it continued, The painting is neither to be cloakroomed or kiosked, as such would defeat our purpose and leave us to ever open arrest. We want pardon, or the right to leave the country. Banishment? We ask that some nonconformist type of person with the fearless fortitude of a Montgomery start the fund for 140,000 pounds. No law can touch him. Propriety may frown, but God must smile. The thief added a P.S., explaining why he called this letter COM-3 when his previous ransom note, the one sent on August 31, 1961, was COM-1. Letter to Reuters, February 11th, was second COM. The letter also included a label from the back of the painting, but the National Gallery still remained skeptical that it was authentic. Frank D. Galay did not hesitate. 
however, confirming that the label was actually created by his firm and attached to the back of the painting while in his firm's possession. And what of the claim that this was a third attempt to arrange an exchange of the Duke? Certainly the first letter was COM 1 to Reuters, but they denied ever receiving anything in February of 1962. And still the National Gallery, or any other agency for that matter, did not move forward with any attempt to organize the 140,000-pound charitable contribution, again refusing to negotiate. Other than a possibly crank November 21st, 1962 letter to the chairman of the trustees of the National Gallery, Lionel Robbins, threatening to never return the painting, no further communication occurred again. Then, about six months later, on May 20th, 1963, two separate letters were received on the same day. One brief note to Robbins explaining that he should contact Lord Rothermere, the chairman of the Daily Mail newspaper, for specifics, and another to the Daily Mail chairman himself, with an elaborate plan involving him as the intermediary in exchanging the painting. This time, the thief was only requesting 5,000 pounds, a detail that Robbins believed probably meant these particular letters were a hoax. More disturbing was the letter to Lord Rothermere, which bordered on incoherent. If it was from the same individual, it indicated a possible mental deterioration. December 30, 1963, brought another letter labeled COM4, referring to the two original letters plus the missing Reuters letter. There was no mention of the Robbins, Lord Rothermere, May 20, 1963 attempt. COM4 also reiterated the 140,000-pound demand, as well as amnesty. The process outlined for delivery included the thief being hooded with a stocking during the exchange and a demand that his identity not be revealed. Clearly, the author of these notes was delusional and not grasping that there was not going to be a negotiation. It would be 15 months before the receipt of fifth and final COM-5 on March 15, 1965. Goya's Wellington is still safe. I have looked upon this affair as an adventurous prank. Must the authorities refuse to see it that way? I know now that I am in the wrong, but I have gone too far to retreat. Liberty was risked in what I mistakenly thought was a magnificent gesture, all to no purpose so far, and I feel the time has come to make a final effort. I propose to return the painting anonymously if the following plan is agreed. The portrait to be put on private exhibition at a five-shilling view fee for one month, after which it would be returned to the gallery, a collection box to be placed at side of picture for good people to give extra, if so inclined, the effort to be conducted on a voluntary basis by Mr. Hendy or others having facilities for same. The affair is to be a true charity, and all monies collected, minus nothing for expenses, given to the place I name, a committee of five may redirect if they so wish. The matter to end there, no prosecutions, no police inquiries as to who has committed this awful deed. I feel that many helpers would give their services free for such an exhibition, and that this troublesome episode can end on a happy note. I do not think the authorities need fear the feat being emulated by others. The risk is great. The material reward, nil. 
Again, the National Gallery did not respond, except for Robbins to state that a man of integrity would have returned the painting after such a long time, and that if the painting was returned, there would be less interest on the part of law enforcement to apprehend and punish the malefactor. Again, the letter was widely covered in the British press, and this stirred within one tabloid organization, the Daily Mirror, an attempt to get involved in brokering a return of the painting. Of course, any successful result or even communication from the thief would be a great scoop. And so the chairman of the paper, Cecil King, on March 18, 1965, published a direct appeal, requesting that whoever had the painting to return it and in return the mirror would set up a month-long exhibit of the painting and any proceeds that resulted from such an exhibition would be earmarked for any designated charity. King specifically underlined that the mirror could not make any legal guarantees that was up to law enforcement, but he did reiterate that any return of the painting would greatly lessen the intensity of the manhunt to arrest and prosecute those responsible. Clearly, the exhibition offer was both nebulous and unrealistic and probably not very compelling. But by now, whoever had the painting had to understand that they were never going to receive the vast sum that they initially demanded and were probably looking for a way out of what was potentially a very long prison sentence. Something in the mirror's communication must have compelled the thief to try and reach some resolution as events accelerated. Only days later, a letter arrived at the Mirror offices addressed to Confidential for Mirror Editor only. In essence, the letter stated, If you can assure me that £30,000 can be got from exhibition, or that you can get gallery permission to continue exhibition until a minimum of £30,000 is taken, you will get the portrait. If in your power to promise such, you may wish to publicize openly, or I will accept an obvious message in personal column of Daily Mirror signed, Whitfield. The morning after public or private message appears, you will receive a letter informing you to pick up Goya. The Mirror posted an appropriate classified sign Whitfield and even published a story offering the specifics of recent developments. Two months transpired with no further contact from the thief, but on May 21st, a letter arrived with a partial cartoon from the May 18th Mirror, a brief note explaining that if anyone subsequently came forward to claim to have sent the letter, they would be able to present the other corner of the cartoon as proof. Also enclosed was a receipt for an item that was stored in the Birmingham train station checked luggage office. Although possibly tempted to retrieve the parcel themselves for the potential scoop of the decade, the Mirror's editors turned the receipt into police. On May 22nd, Detective Harold Reeves presented the document at the left luggage office in Birmingham. He was handed a parcel carefully wrapped in brown paper and tied with thick twine. The words, glass, handle with care on two labels affixed to the wrapping. Inside was a box with six screws securing a lid to a wooden container that clearly held something else. Inside, in a plastic bag, another diligently brown paper-wrapped parcel with several layers of tape and fiberboard arranged with numerous pencil erasers to keep the protective layers from rubbing against the internal contents. When these layers were removed, Detective Reeves was able to see Goya's Duke of Wellington. Upon his initial and unprofessional examination, he believed it to be undamaged, except that there was no frame or glass covering. 
An investigation by Reeves determined that the package was left by a tall, light-haired individual, approximately 25 years old. Depositing the parcel on May 5th, the individual signed paperwork with the name Mr. Bloxham. The name, undoubtedly a pseudonym, had a strange relationship to a character in an Oscar Wilde play, Jack Worthing, who as an infant is left in storage in a railway station. As some in the media and even at the National Gallery suspected, at least one of the individuals responsible for the theft was quite literate with a quirky sense of humor. Detective Reeves transported the painting back to a police station where a National Gallery official authenticated it. When the Mirror inquired as to the possibility of setting up the exhibition for charity, they were politely but firmly rejected. By May 27th, the painting was back on display, although this time in a conventional setting, surrounded by other lesser-known Goya portraits. As far as the gallery was concerned, all's well that ends well. However, that was not the last that the National Gallery and the newspapers heard from the mysterious letter writer. Two more brief communications were sent, one to the Mirror and one to the Exchange Telegraph, the former berating the Mirror for not living up to a perceived promise, the other requesting that the Exchange Telegraph help to bring about the paid exhibition for charity by interceding with the National Gallery. While not incoherent, the letters seemed to indicate a detachment from reality, especially in clinging to the notion that the museum would want anything further to do with an individual who had stolen one of its most celebrated paintings and kept it privately for four years. While law enforcement was at least relieved that the painting was returned, there was little hope that those responsible would ever be tracked down. With no more communications necessary, there was no more potential to further interact, and the thief or thieves could safely vanish, at least comfortable in the knowledge that they would never be held responsible. It seemed a fitting ending to what was from its beginning a bizarre crime. But if Scotland Yard, the National Gallery, and the media thought that this case could not get any stranger, they had no way of knowing who and what they were dealing with. In fact, the strange case of the stolen Duke of Wellington was only just beginning. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Kempton Bunton. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Kidnapped, the Incredible True Story of the Art Theft That Shocked a Nation by Alan Hirsch and the Daily Mail June 14, 2021 newspaper article entitled The Man Who Really Stole Goya's Priceless Duke of Wellington by Kevin MacDonald. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <laughs>